We're now at Canto 26 of Dante's Paradiso as we return for another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson. We are still on the sphere of the fixed stars, the antechamber, we might say, to the highest of the heavens, the ninth sphere, the Empyrean, the real home of all of the saved souls that comprise the church triumphant. We left Dante at the end of the last canto blind and confused. He had looked too intently into the resplendent light of St. John, trying to determine if his earthly body had, as legend said, ascended into heaven with his soul. It hadn't, and Dante seems to have injured his eyesight in attempting to find out. This is where we come in with the new canto. Dante hears a voice address him as he's standing there, confused, maybe even panicked. It's St. John, comforting him and taking up the role of the next examiner, this time on the subject of caritas, or love. It will take a little while for your eyesight to recover after you've burned it looking at me, he says, and meanwhile trade your sight for your speech, and let's start the exam. Tell me, then, what is the target your soul is aiming for? Oh, yes, and, and don't worry about your eyesight. Beatrice has the power to restore it, as Ananias restored St. Paul's eyesight. Notice notice how the exam question is sandwiched between the two kindly remarks aimed at soothing Dante's obvious concern. Maybe we can see this as an example of caritas in action. Dante graciously and gracefully lets go of his concern, and addressing John, but knowing that Beatrice is standing right there, he says he can wait for however long it will be until Beatrice wishes to restore his sight. And then he answers the question. John had asked for the target. Dante speaks of the good. It's the same thing, after all. We only ever aim at something good. The good, or target, that the exam board is looking for is, Dante says, that Alpha and Omega, that is God, which love points to in all scripture, literally or figuratively. In other words, the main goal of his soul, the thing that his soul loves most, is God. Dante pauses a minute while St. John interposes a slight objection. You're going to have to take this a little further, he says. Who directed you towards this target? In other words, as in the two previous sessions, Dante needs to declare what was the source of his knowing about this love. Two things, he says, shaped his love— philosophy and divine authority. Through these two means he came to know about love, to have an intellectual apprehension of it, and then to know about goodness is to love it, and the greater the goodness, the greater the love. Therefore it follows that the thing that holds so much goodness that everything else is just a reflection of its goodness, namely God, must move everyone who understands its goodness to love it. In other words, God is the greatest good, and therefore the most love-worthy being there is. So when we come to know how good he is, then, then we will automatically love him more than anything else. These ideas come from Aristotle, though Dante does not name him. It's what he meant when he referred to philosophy as the first source of his knowledge of love. The second source was divine authority, 
in such passages as the one in Exodus, when God tells Moses that he will make all his goodness pass before Moses. Here is God explicitly identifying himself as goodness. And incidentally, when God passed before Moses, he showed only his back, because Moses, being human, could not withstand the brightness of God face to face. No man shall see me and live. Does this passage occur to Dante now because he's just been, not killed, but blinded by the too intense brightness of this saint in heaven? The Moses example comes from the Old Testament. The New Testament example comes from John himself. Dante is not specific about which passage he has in mind, but it would be most fitting if he's thinking about the end of the prologue to John's Gospel, which amplifies the passage with Moses. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. John confirms that Dante's explanation accords with reason and with authority. Now he adds another question, or rather a topic, for Dante to elaborate on. Tell us what other lines are pulling you towards God so we can see the many teeth this love is biting you with. <laughs> this sudden image of teeth biting is startling, but I think we should take it n not in the sense of a lion's devouring teeth, but more as teeth holding something or someone in a tight grip, the teeth being the active ones, the person being grasped, the passive one. All this love is ultimately God's initiative. All we have to do is come to realize that we are being held firmly by this love. Dante can see what John is aiming at. It, it's always good in an exam to try to get behind the reasoning of the person setting the questions. All things leading to this love are the teeth, Dante says. There is the very fact of the existence of the world, and my own existence, and his death on the cross to bring me to salvation. All these things, as well as the very knowledge I've just been speaking about, have redirected me from the lesser objects of love, rescuing me to the haven of true love. I love the very leaves in God's garden, with a love in proportion to the love God himself has for them. Dante then finishes his answer, and as has happened before at such a point, the whole chorus of souls there sings in joyful praise at hearing Dante's answer. Holy, holy, holy is their chorus now, and unlike the previous times, Beatrice is joining in with them. And now is the time for her healing. As we are dazed when we are just waking up, startled at our first view after we open our eyes until we remember where we are, so was Dante as Beatrice's radiance cleared the darkness from his sight. In fact, now he can see better than before. And what amazes Dante is that there is a fourth figure of light now appearing with Peter, James, and John. Beatrice explains, here, within this light, is the first person ever created, who gazes with love upon his creator. This is, of all people, Adam himself. Dante tells us he was like a tree that is bent over by a strong wind and then rises up again to its normal height. He was, as we say, bowled over by this news, but then regains his footing, eager to find out more. 
He doesn't want to lose any of the time allotted for this exciting meeting. Not wanting to lose any time, Dante doesn't ask his questions, knowing that Adam already knows what they are. But, but that doesn't stop him from addressing Adam first in a formal style. Oh, you, the only fruit that was ripe from the very start, O oh, Padre Antico, ancient father, who are both father and father-in-law of every bride. I'll try to discuss that odd image in a few minutes. Adam's flaming form seems to shake with pleasure at this greeting, and then replies, Yes, I know what you want to ask of me. In fact, I know the questions better than you do yourself, since I see them through the eyes of that primal mirror. Adam then lists four questions bothering Dante. How long ago was it that God created Adam in the Garden of Eden? How long did Adam and Eve live in the garden before expulsion? What was the true reason for that expulsion? And what language did Adam speak? Adam begins with the third question, the most important. What exactly did they do wrong there in the garden? It wasn't the act of eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Adam says. That wasn't the problem in itself. The real problem was overstepping the boundaries, going beyond the limits set by God, the disobedience. Adam then says that he spent more than 4,302 years in limbo. He lived for 930 years. We now can calculate that Adam was created in 5198 BCE and expelled, as we'll hear, that same year, the same day in fact, and died in 4268, when he descended to limbo until Christ's harrowing of hell in 34 CE, in, in case you're counting. And as for language, a subject always of interest to Dante the poet, Adam's original language had fallen into disuse by the time of the Tower of Babel, when whatever language was in use was then broken up into many different, mutually incomprehensible tongues. Language, like all things created by human beings, will decay eventually. We all have to use language, but unlike Adam, no particular language comes naturally to us. We have to learn it, and if we like, we can even choose which language we speak. Italian, or Scots, or Latin, Queen's English, or local dialect, or whatever. During Adam's lifetime, we're told, the name of God was I, or E. That's not I as in the English for me. It's Dante's way of indicating the name Yah, Jah, J-A-H, a name we still find, for instance, at the ending of Hallelujah. Later the name became El, E-L, which we still see in English in the names Michael, Rachel, Raphael, and so on. Well, that's the way of languages. They come and go like leaves on a branch, new ones developing all the time. The canto ends with Adam's answer to the second question about how long he lived in Eden before being kicked out. Is it a little bit of shame that keeps Adam from saying directly how short a time it was that he was there? I lived there, he says, innocent, then guilty, from the first hour of the day until the sun moved into the hour after the sixth hour. In other words... Adam and Eve lived in bliss for less than seven hours before breaking the bounds and ruining everything. On that shocking note, the canto ends.
Now the canto opens with Dante blinded by his impatient desire to know about the body and soul reunited in the form of St. John, and it ends with Adam's impatient desire to know about good and evil. In between that is the discussion about love aiming for things we see are good. We'd heard about this from Statius and others earlier on, but now we deal with the highest form of love and the highest good, which is God. That's where we should direct our souls, not to finding out whether a soul here also still has its body, and not to gaining knowledge quickly by eating what we're told not to eat. The means of knowing this ultimate good are philosophy and scripture. <laughs> Neither of which, of course, was available to Adam, but he did have the presence of love intimately within him. Dante's exam finishes when he concludes his answers about love. He's been answering while still in outward darkness, but the end of the exam is the time for opening his eyes again, and this shifts us to the second part of the canto, the episode with Adam, which also shifts the roles. Once again, Dante now is the one with questions. Though in this case he doesn't ask the questions, he's too eager. A significant point in this canto about premature desires. But in this case, the eagerness is well-founded, and Dante doesn't push impetuously ahead with his desires, but backs off a bit and allows the other person, Adam, to set the pace. And so it is the person being questioned, Adam, who expresses the questions before answering them, and incidentally reordering the questions in order of importance. Let's spend a minute with Beatrice's role in restoring Dante's sight. Dante, perhaps having learned his lesson about pushing too much into things beyond his concern, now exercises patience, and, not anxious to have what he desires, he allows Beatrice to heal his blindness at her convenience. His eyes, he seems to say, are devoted to her anyway, having been the means of his first loving view of her all those years before. Since the blindness arose from the intensity of looking into St. John's light, we might think that once the effect of that brightness wears off, Dante's eyes will gradually come back into operation. John even seems to hint that this is what will happen. But that doesn't seem to be the case. The healing is in Beatrice's hands. She can open his eyes whenever she chooses. And she chooses to do this only after he answers questions about love. It's as though she knows that what is required here is not sight, but insight a deep, undistracted self-examination. Dante picks up the common poetic motif of blindness, giving a person deeper insight. The blind prophet, or bard, for instance. So here, at the climax of his exam, Beatrice seems to know that she must keep Dante blind so he can find the true answers. Beatrice is compared to Ananias, who cured Paul's blindness. Paul had been going in the wrong direction, heading to Damascus to persecute the new sect of Christians, pushing too far where he shouldn't have, like Dante pushing his sight into the flame of St. John, only on a more serious scale. You lose your sight, your ability to see where you are, when you go in the wrong direction. But there are agents of God ready to restore your sight at the appropriate moment. Speaking of going in the wrong direction may remind us of the first canto of the Inferno, where Dante has lost the right path and is wandering, directionless, in that dark woods. 
It's Virgil who rescues him, but it was Beatrice who sent Virgil. So here she is, in a way, repeating her earlier action, now as we're coming towards the end of our story, connecting us back to the beginning, like all good stories. I think I spoke enough already about the third part of the exam. Let's jump over to the Adam episode. Maybe our first response here is to ask, where is Eve? As usual, Dante goes for the male in preference to the female. But if we consider it, there are good reasons for focusing on Adam rather than Eve. For one thing, the figure of Eve was loaded with all sorts of associations about the frailty and indeed sinful seductiveness of women. And although Eve would certainly be above all that here in heaven, Dante would nevertheless have to deal somehow with all these associations. Not that he couldn't do it. He's done harder things before. But the chief reason for focusing on Adam surely is that he was the first human being, the only one except for Jesus who was born directly from God, the only fruit, as Dante says, that was ripe from the beginning, perfect from birth. All the rest of us have been born flawed, and the myth tells us why, doesn't it? Adam is not only a ripe fruit, but, in that odd line, the one that every bride is both daughter and daughter-in-law to. He's the father of all of us, men and women, so he's the bride's father and also the groom's father. All marriage is thus a kind of incest. Well, yes, <laughs> but a better way to put it might be that all of us, having the same father, the same ultimate father, we are all brothers and sisters to each other, just like all the souls here on heaven. And we might add, then, that all marriages are a kind of reconnection to a common parentage, a rebinding of what has joined the couple all along. Adam makes the important distinction that his sin was not the actual eating of the fruit, but overstepping the limits, the rules, or guardrails put in place from the beginning of his stay in Eden. No act is bad in itself. It's the will that determines moral value. Are you choosing the higher or the lower good? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, we know such knowledge is necessary for a full life. But the point is that Adam and Eve were not ready for that knowledge. It had to come in God's appointed time— just as Dante's eyesight has to be restored not when he wants it to be, but when Beatrice deems it's time. Even though Adam was the fruit already ripe, he wasn't quite finished, we see. He knew what was good by some inner certainty, a kind of intuitive understanding, but he seems to have jumped ahead to a conscious knowledge of this, losing his innocence, that time of life, as Wordsworth says, when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. Now, we know these days how important childhood innocence is for our development, before we take on a more sophisticated sense of the world, but Adam and Eve tried to bypass this innocence and move on. They thought they knew better. To put this in the terms of Dante's exam, the fruit of the tree was good, but God was a better good, and that's where their desire should have been focused. They should have lived in hope of this knowledge, not tried to obtain it, just as Dante has learned that the reunion of the soul with the resurrected body is something to hope for, 
not to go looking for now. Dante's concern for language means he's willing to spend several lines on Adam's explanation of the origins and development of language. Languages, he says, are like leaves. The leaf is there, then it withers and dies off, and a new leaf comes along to take its place. We may recall that earlier in the canto, Dante had declared he loves even the very leaves on the trees. And so Latin gives way to Italian, and perhaps this is Dante's defense for writing an epic poem like the Divine Comedy, not in Latin, as one was supposed to do, but taking up the more modern vernacular language of Italian and shaping it to his ends. I suppose the issue of the decay of language is a problem all generations face. We certainly do today, as so much of our older literature is almost dead to modern readers. You'll have seen that when I quote from the Bible in these podcasts, I go back to the King James Version, or in the case of the Psalms, to the slightly older Coverdale translation. I do this in a sort of defiance of modern translations, which to my ears sound, sound drab and diluted, though their meaning is certainly much clearer. I know that the older language will no longer ring in the ears of most people today, but I try to support the elegant older language, even though I'm quite aware that it is a losing battle. Or think back to the 18th century. Alexander Pope praised the poetry of his predecessor John Dryden, but he knew, like Dante, the truth that everything, especially language, decays. Dryden's fine language will in time become as outdated as, say, Geoffrey Chaucer's Middle English. And such as Chaucer is, shall Dryden be, Pope said. And indeed, the language and style of Dryden is pretty much dead to most readers today. But while we're on the subject, here's another view of this. We are assuming that language is something organic, something that lives and decays. Dante even gives us the image of leaves coming and going on a tree, the only simile that plain-speaking Adam uses. But there are other ways of looking at this. George Orwell rejected the idea of language as a thing of natural growth, proposing that it might be more accurate to call it an instrument which we shape for our own purposes. When we see people obviously misusing words or hiding their meaning behind bland clichés, we must resist this, Orwell insists, and fight for clarity of language, which will both express and encourage clarity of thought. Dante doesn't speak about language in this way here, but certainly he would agree with Orwell, as he demonstrates in the linguistic precision of his great poem. He would fight against linguistic abuses as much as he fought against the abuses of the church, fight simply by setting the better example. And then there's Adam's final revelation. How long was he in the Garden of Eden? How long in bliss before they both went too far? It was less than seven hours. Let's say that he was given life first thing in the morning. By mid-afternoon, they were out of there. That's astounding. It's not as if Dante has biblical authority for this number. He could have chosen a longer time. Why then does he give them so short a time in Eden? Are we seeing here, more clearly than anywhere else, Dante's sense of the weakness of human beings? the self-will that insists on having its own way no matter what. This is what has led so many souls down to the inferno. 
The cruelty and abuses found in our world, however, stretch far beyond the inferno, as we have seen the souls in purgatory and in heaven constantly describing and decrying these abuses, which seem to disturb even the joy of heaven. If we take all this in, then perhaps we won't be surprised that Adam and Eve couldn't make it through even one day without going wrong. There's no sentimentality in Dante. Face it, people are wicked and do wrong and evil things all the time. We, who are trying to follow the right path, face a lot of hard work, not just in dealing with the oppression and injustice all around us, but also in recognizing and turning away from the self-will within ourselves. There is joy in heaven, to be sure, but just remember what a painful journey it has been for Dante to get here. Oh yes, and one other thing that bothers me. If Adam was in Eden fewer than seven hours, and even fewer hours before Eve came, then then where did he find the time to name all the animals? This is, this is one of those questions we're not really supposed to be asking, so forget I mentioned it. Speaking of all the evil on earth, this is going to be a big feature in the following canto, where we'll meet next time.